Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure. Timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Hosea Part 3, and I am glad that this episode actually is going to fall on Ash Wednesday. Usually I like to release episodes when I do on Thursdays, but what the heck? Um, I can just change it for this week and make it fall on Ash Wednesday, partly because I just think it's cool that it lines up thematically uh, with what we're talking about here with Hosea, which I mean any of the episodes of Hosea would fit with Ash Wednesday, but here in part three, I just, um, as I've explained in the first part of Hosea, which you should listen to part one and part two if you haven't, um, that... (sighs) We're not trying to go verse by verse through everything in Hosea, but we're trying to tackle three major passages in there to get to the heart of this. And you really could get the whole story of Hosea in if you read Hosea chapters 1 through 3. But of course, uh, it's it's good to read beyond that, right? And so here, what we want to do today with our focus passage, I want to take you into um, two different parts of it and uh, showcase something for you. But how this lines up with Ash Wednesday? Well, I hope it would be pretty apparent, but any of the prophets you read are going to have some sort of motif of returning, or in Hebrew, the idea of shuv. This idea of returning, repenting, the this... Uh, uh, getting the trajectory back to God, and that is part of what we talked about in Hosea part one with the plot. The plot, not just of Hosea, but the plot of humanity, which really could be uh, well stated by studying Hosea, right? I mean, it, isn't this like kind of the story with all the prophets that they're calling out to the people and showcasing where humanity has gone wrong? Hosea is not too much different in that regard. So, Uh, No further recap, Hosea Part 1 and Part 2, they stand on their own, and they help uh, get us to where we are at with Hosea Part 3. So if you do have your Bible and you want to follow along, Hosea 5, let's start in verses 13 through 15, uh, and then we're going to go a little bit further. Hosea 5, 13 through 15, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent a delegation to the great king, but he cannot cure you or heal your wound. For I am like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. I will carry them off, and no one will rescue them. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. All right. And uh, what exactly is going on here? It's kind of the one of those passages that if you read it around a group of people, you might look at each other with blank faces and be like, what What did we just read? And at this point, Israel and Judah came to terms with their dire situation. Notice that they saw their wound. That's the beginning of verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, uh, they, they realized that they, they're in a dire condition, dire situation. This was so obvious that both kingdoms recognized their debilitating like, condition, and neither looked in the right direction for relief. Rather than returning 
in repentance to God, which should be the obvious answer. Uh, Ephraim, a.k.a. Israel, went to Assyria. Now, Assyria was their... At least they should have saw Assyria as kind of like their enemy. Uh, uh, Yeah, and to go to your enemy when you're wounded is really asking for it, especially when it's a slap in the face to God. So to illustrate this more, Israel had begun to feel symptoms of their depravity, but they couldn't quite diagnose it. And that's why they came up with the wrong remedy. Going to Assyria wasn't the answer. Returning to God was. They had symptoms without proper diagnosis. They had a plan of treatment, but without the right cure. And so God has to do something to them. God has to tear them apart in order to heal the deep, deep cancer in their hearts spiritually. They had to be exposed to the core so they could be healed. And that's exactly the imagery of Yahweh being like a lion to them and tearing them apart. Now, it sounds to us like quite cruel, right? Wow. Like, and I, I thought this was a little bit comical. And so I will be, this is verse 14. Hosea 5.14, For I'm like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. (laughs) So he's apparently a little bit easier on the house of Judah, and we should know historically that's because they were not nearly as bad as the northern kingdom of Israel. But yeah, so he acts like a lion to them, and I, I think the best way we really need to understand this imagery, and of course this is hyperbole, and you know, in prophetic literature, you're going to get dramatic or extreme or severe, vivid language to make the point. So what is the point here? Let's modernize it. This might help us out here. When a patient goes under the knife of a surgeon, the purpose is to heal, not harm. The tearing apart foresees the mending back together. Did you catch that? So kind of like when we uh, place ourselves, willingly or not, underneath the care of a surgeon who knows what they're doing, to, to, they are going to, yes, tear you open to some extent, but not to harm you, but to heal you. And so the tearing apart is forcing the mending back together and how that will be uh, for the betterment. And so in a similar way, if we keep in context what this passage is saying beyond just this idea of like being like a lion to them and tearing them apart, God's heart for his people, reading before and after and around, we would know that this idea of judgment, this idea of what he's going to do to tear them apart, has the function of healing them. It has a purpose to it. It is not God just getting back at them because he's mad at them. That wouldn't be the point. The point is something so much richer than that. I mean, when God judges his people, it's for correction, not condemnation. You see, when God interacts with his people the different in a very different way than he would to someone who does not claim to be his, of his people. And that could be a study for a whole other time, am I right? And so in verse 15, notice this, what Yahweh says he'll do. I'll depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. Okay, he says he's re- he will retire to his place away from Israel. And this is definitely an evocative text. Instead of analyzing it like a matter of fact, because God didn't actually abandon them, analyze it as an interior look at the heart of God, which was hurting here. <laughs> which is kind of crazy for people to think about, right? But the purpose of God making his people feel abandoned 
was actually handing them over to the reality that they had created for themselves. Think about it. They essentially already created their lives apart from God, living as spiritual adulterers. So what does God here say? He says, okay, we are separated then. I'll go this way, you go that way. And in that distress, hopefully, it leads them to return to Yahweh. And as we have already said, this is sad and it has to be this way because we, if we truly realized, and if Israel truly realized what they were invited into, they would never run away from it. Like we described in Hosea part one with the plot, most of what we're going to see in the whole Bible is when people are rebelling, it's not because God is giving the lesser end of the deal. If you follow God, you get something that you can settle for. No, like people don't even realize Man, people don't realize what God is inviting them into. If we did, we would never run away from it. Never. We would be like, uh, this is the best. There's literally nothing we could ever ask that would be better than what God is inviting us into. So when we sin, especially when we willingly sin, we are having a serious case of spiritual amnesia and forgetting what we're being invited into. Okay? So uh, another thing to remember here is that this this... I mean, when we read Hosea, it's not funneling in some sort of chronological flow. Hosea chapters 1 through 3 tell the whole story, and what we're reading here looks like an interior look of almost how it came to that conclusion. So, and as I read this part, and as we move into chapter 6 of Hosea for the rest of our time, say, the best way I can really get to the essence of what is happening here actually comes from a book, the first line of a book by the man, a man by the name of Julian Barnes, who is an atheist and is an atheist. And it simply reads this, his first line of his book. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. You know, I think here when Yahweh is calling out his people, to return and says, you know what, I'm going to depart from you until you recognize your guilt and seek my face. I think Yahweh wanted his people to miss him. And, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to miss a God who, in turn, misses you. And I know we're talking about ancient Israel here, but if we can just remember that all scripture is also for our profit and our benefit uh, and, and for some way used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and building up in righteousness, then wherever we are, whenever our hearts go any wayward direction, no matter how small of a wayward path or no matter how extreme, when we go wayward from God and we are called and feel that tugging of conviction from the Holy Spirit to return, we need to realize that God wants us to miss Him because when we miss Him, we realize that he was missing us. That's not the worst thing in the world, to miss a God who is in turn missing you. Let's read Hosea 6, 1 through 3. And then notice that, my gosh, like uh, th- there's some clearly some time who passed here. I, I like looked at the first line and I'm like, ah, yes, this is a good thing to remember. Th- clearly something has changed in the narrative. Because if we just heard what happened in the Hosea 5.15, now we go to Hosea 6, something has changed. Because get a load of this. Hosea 6, 1-3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, and he will heal us. He has wounded us, and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise us up, 
so we can live in his presence. Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. Now, notice here that Hosea identifies himself with the people and calls on them to join him in returning to Yahweh. That's a good leader right there. The placement of Hosea 6, 1 through 3, a call to repent immediately after Yahweh's declaration that he would retire to his place and await a positive response from the people cannot be accidental. This is the very purpose that God would in some way make his people feel abandoned because that's the reality they've created for themselves. Not that God actually wants to abandon his people, but that they had created a life so full of a uh, idolatry and spiritual adultery that it was they were acting like practical atheists they might say they believed in god but there was no connection to their life and to their god their lifestyle matched nothing of what they might profess of belief and i just wonder if there's ever times uh, gosh I, i'm not I, I certainly would not say that and equate that to that being the case with many probably those listening to this podcast that we've turned into practical atheists, but just to warn us away from even stepping foot onto that direction. That'd be such a tragic way to live. It's part of the reason why we need the spiritual disciplines. We need things that are like anchors in our day, that we come back to in a daily or weekly fashion that help us ground us in God. Remembering that the very relationship with Him is the really per- the whole point I mean, even notice in uh, Hosea, this is great. Hosea 6, uh, verse 2, the end of verse 2. Actually, just read the whole verse, right? He will revive us after two days, and on the third day raise us up. Gosh, what's with the third day, by the way? Reminds me of Jesus. Um, In the last part of verse 2, so we can live in his presence. So we can live in his presence. If highlight, circle, underline that word so, that gives you the purpose. For the very purpose of living in his presence, the whole point. And so we need those things that are going to ground us and actually get us to um, just be with God in whatever fashion that looks like. That's why, again, the spiritual disciplines are so important. But yeah, so in the end of Hosea 5, God is calling his people to return, to repent, to realize the severity of their situation and not look for solutions elsewhere. And in Hosea 6, something has changed with the people's heart. And Hosea um, identifying his people, let's return to the Lord. He will bind us up. Although he has torn us apart like a surgeon for the purpose of healing you, he, he, he will bind up our wounds. That's true. That is good. That is good. And I, I think the main thing I want us to really gather here, and probably the most important thing I'm going to say in this whole, this podcast. Yes. For this episode, if there's nothing else you get from this, uh, listen in closely, lean in for this, all right? Um, I think we need to realize that repentance, whatever ideas we have, positive or negative, repentance is cathartic and healing. Repentance is cathartic and healing. It is cathartic in that we take down the mask we are holding over our face and we show the real shape of ourselves and the real condition we are in. We unmask ourselves when we repent because there's no more hiding or pretending in the act of genuine repentance. We get to stop the charade. And there's something liberating about being weak and not trying to act strong. And sometimes I think we, f- we can even fake ourselves out. We can end up believing our own charade, not just getting others to believe it, but believe our own. 
And so repentance needs to almost be like this regular thing that we do. I don't, I don't know how often. I'm not trying to prescribe anything. But my point is, like, in your walk with God, there needs to be something that you can unmask yourself before him. That in your time with him, you can know that you can come to him with all honesty, unmasking yourself as much as possible, even from the lies that you believe. Because part A, part B of this, if repentance is cathartic, it's also healing. Repentance is healing because God does not leave us unmasked in a helpless state. Instead, he draws us close and heals us. There's something about the character of God that is gentle toward those who come to him with a contrite heart, a contrite, humble, broken spirit. He will not turn that away. He will not turn away that kind of heart. He loves, loves, loves when people recognize, dare I say, even our weakness before him. You know, there's something about shame that wants us to get us to run away from Christ. But when confession and repentance, it draws us near to him. Because he's our savior. He's our healer. He's not going to turn us away. And there's this beautiful passage in Psalm 51. You know, I got to look it up even right now because um, I'm thinking about it on the spot. Um, let's see here. Let's, let's pull up Psalm 51. I'm going to pull this up at least. So bear with me for a second because I think this, this passage is coming to mind for a reason. All right, let's see here. Okay, in Psalm 51, 17, it says this. And all of Psalm 51 is such a great passage to pray uh, in a time of repentance. A beautiful passage for Ash Wednesday, right? Um, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen, though, says this: "The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God." You know, this is in the context of David praying for God to create a clean heart for him, to renew a steadfast spirit in him, to restore the joy of his salvation, and. Here it says, you know, God, the sacrifice pleasing to you is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. And he even goes on in verse 19 to say, uh, you know, like he does, basically he doesn't want our offerings. He doesn't want our sacrifices. He wants our heart. And that's going to really transition to what we want to say here. But uh, I think the most, as I try to put this together for you in a way that is, memorable. I think it would say something that I learned from one of my mentors years ago now, years ago, but something I'll never forget. And it's a simple phrase. It's a beautiful thing to learn to fall forward. I want to say that again. It's a beautiful thing to learn to fall forward. Because here's the thing, we can either fall by um, leaning into God's grace, which is the good thing, or leaning away from it. And when we fall, because we will fall, we have the option to lean into the grace of God and to fall forward on this journey of trusting God and being transformed by him. You see, when Israel and Judah came to terms with their sickness, what did God want from them? Not to go figure it out on their own. He wanted them to come to him. But instead, they went a far opposite direction. They went to Assyria, someone who could not heal their spiritual condition of depravity. And he calls again for them to return. Because like a good surgeon, he knows their wound and he knows how to, to cut it out and how to heal it. And so repentance for us is cathartic and healing. And it's a beautiful thing to learn to fall forward. There's one more thing I want to read uh, for us today. 
And it's, uh, if we keep reading, it's verses four through six. And then we will end, uh, well, actually, through verse through verse seven. So six, Hosea six, four through seven. And then we'll finish with some comments on that. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. This is what I have used the prophets to cut them down. I've killed them with the words from my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning. For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me. And I, I want to end on that verse, and you'll hear why in a second. But notice here how Yahweh compares their, their love to like a morning cloud and a dew that vividly, uh, it's just such a vivid reminder that their love was something that came and went, ebb and flowed, but it vanished very quickly. It was very short-lived and superficial. And is that does that ever describe our love? I would sure hope not. I would sure hope that our our love for God is something that is more steadfast than that. Because God doesn't want our faith to be one that ebbs and flows with the occasional inspiration and feelings that come with that. While we certainly experience highs of faith, at least I hope we do, we can't let that be the driving force of our devotion to God. We have to learn what it means to also walk with God in the mundane parts of life that do not have such high experiences. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying to not seek to experience the love, peace, and comfort, and joy of God. What I am saying is that when those things are not passionately or tangibly felt, to not let your faith waver. And then notice in Hosea 6, 5 uh, here why how he's using prophets to cut them down by the words of his mouth. Consider the lengths that God went to to show Israel that they were on the bad path. It was not like a passive-aggressive person who is upset and boiling about something but doesn't say anything. We all know how frustrating that is. Instead, he has been sending prophets to tell them they just were not listening. God was sending prophet after prophet to let his people know how he felt about the situation. And then Hosea 6.6. 6. Uh, actually, a, a, fam- a well-known passage in the Bible and uh, one that Jesus quotes twice in Matthew, Matthew 9.13 and Matthew 12.7. It says, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. You see, the Lord had never intended that sacrifice, the sacrificial system, would be a ritual which would exist on its own because that would lead to it being viewed as a means of manipulating God, something closer to pagan ideology and like magic. See, they, they would use the sacrifices to like, okay, I did this wrong, let me do this formula to fix the relationship. That, that was not the point. For sacrifice to the Lord was to be meaningful, it had to be accompanied by like the right heart attitude. So inner loyalty uh, would be the more of the intention of what God was trying to get at. While we don't do sacrifices today, I, I wonder what would be the equivalent if we try to paraphrase Hosea 6.6. 6. It would certainly be, you know, like God saying to us, like, I desire faithful love and not your perfect consistency of reading your Bible every day if your heart is not in it. Or you're attending church every single week thinking that you're checking some sort of box even though you can, you have not talked to me in years. You see, sacrifices and rituals can be performed with a hollow heart. And that was the case for Israel. They gave God burnt offerings like the Torah had commanded, but what God really wanted was their hearts to burn for Him. And our sacrifices are worthless to Him if our hearts are not 
what are ablaze. And so I wanted to end with verse 7. And there's obviously so much more to Hosea, which I would highly encourage you to dig into. But I think this is just really a summarizing verse too, because it says this, but they, like Adam, have violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me. You know, talking about sin as this betrayal to a God who is so faithful, a God who does not uh, compromise the relationship. Anytime the relationship's compromised with God, it's because of our sin, not because of his. He doesn't sin. In Hosea 6, 7, though, in the, I, I want to end here too, because I feel like there's actually also an element of hope here. Um, especially, yeah. <laughs> Hosea 6, 7 makes the important point that the lesson of the two trees that we found in the Garden of Eden, the choice of life or death, still has not been learned by Israel. Just as Adam had failed the test of love, so Israel had too. But through this, as, as we see in Hosea, we see God's determination to solve the issue of the heart. And if there is ever any doubt God's commitment, of God's commitment, we only need to remember that there is a New Testament, not just an Old Testament. The New Testament is proof that God never forsake humanity that God has not given up on humanity or his mission. And that's why as new covenant believers, we read Hosea differently than as if we were the original audience of Hosea, because we read it with the, on the side of realized hope of the Messiah having come, the truest solution, the truest sacrifice, the, the one who actually is the, the great physician, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we attack the issue of idolatry in our wayward hearts way differently, perhaps, than maybe someone who first read this or would have heard this. And so my hope to you this Ash Wednesday is that you would not be afraid to have repentance be this cathartic and healing rhythm of your life, that we would constantly find ways to return to God so that we don't get off the trajectory. Because again, God is trying to take us on a trajectory towards transformation, towards love, to be loved by him and to be a loving expression, the very embodiment of what Christ's love would be to the rest of the world. So let's not, let's not be afraid of repentance. Let's not be afraid to unmask ourselves before him. Let's know that he's the one that like a good surgeon, going under his knife is not to tear us apart. It's for the purpose of healing us. After all, my friends, like I've already said, it's a beautiful thing to learn to fall forward. With that, we'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.